This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. I want you to open your Bible again, those of you that are here in the last hour know, to the Psalms. We looked in the first service at Psalm 127. We come now to the twin Psalm, Psalm 128. It's fascinating, but throughout the book of Psalms, many times you will find Psalms put in pairs. So uh, a psalm that precedes it, a psalm that follows it, connects in some way, uh, even in, in its arrangement. And one really interesting thing is that these are the two family psalms found in the section known as the Songs of Degrees. Let me show you what I mean. Everybody look at Psalm 120. Do you see Psalm 120? There's a title. What is it? Yeah, look at Psalm 121, 22, 23. 24, 25. Anybody noticing a pattern yet? Yeah, all the way through Psalm 134, this, this section, there are 15 psalms known as a song of degrees. Now, I don't know about you. When I think degrees, I think temperature. I think it's cold outside and I want it to be warmer and all God's people said amen. That's not the degrees. The degrees here really are geographical. Uh, in fact, the, the word for degrees here is the same word for ascent, to go up. This came alive to me a few weeks ago. We were leading a Bible study tour in Israel, and uh, we, we started our time in the region of the Galilee, and that was amazing. And then we took the journey from the Galilee to Jerusalem. Did you know that from anywhere in, in that area, in that region, when you go up to Jerusalem, you literally go up to Jerusalem. We live in the mountains. We live in the other Virginia, West Virginia. How many of you know there is a state called West Virginia? Yes. And so we're your neighbors. We live in the mountains. We, we're in Beckley, and there's a, a, actually a ski resort in our town. So we're at about 3,200 feet above sea level, something like that. And so when we make our way home, we're always going up, 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 up. And that's the idea here. It is, these are songs of ascent. And they tell me that Jewish families, this is what's so interesting to me when you talk about home and family life, that Jewish families annually, of course, would make their trek, their journey to Jerusalem for the, for the feast. And that along the way, as they went up to Jerusalem, they would sing as they went. Uh, I'm a traveler. As an itinerant preacher and evangelist, I'm on the road all the time or in the air, but I'm traveling all the time. And I've learned from experience that songs make the trip go faster. How many of you agree with that? So some of you have children. You ever sing with your kids in the car? And uh, sometimes you wish you hadn't got it started, right? And you think, all right, I wish I could turn that radio off. It doesn't work that way. But you're singing your way along the trip. You're learning to enjoy the journey. Well, that is literally what the people did with these songs of degrees. Now, there's a little debate. There's a little debate over how they sang them, when they sang them. Some Bible teachers believe that they sang them as they journeyed toward Jerusalem. So geographically, as they were making their way up the winding paths towards the city. Jerusalem is actually a city built on seven hills, not on one hill. So when you're there, there are multiple hills. You're surrounded. You know, I'm thinking about David saying, my help cometh from these hills. 
they're surrounded by hills. And so you have Mount Moriah and you have Mount Zion and you have the Mount of Olives and on and on and on. All these hills there in Jerusalem. So it is believed that they sang them along the way. The other idea is that it is believed very often that they were sung as they literally ascended the temple stairs. We stood on the steps of the ancient temple. You can't, you can't get to where the temple itself was now on the Temple Mount. Uh, that's where the, the Dome of the Rock is, but you can come to the, to the stairs on one side of it. And it was fascinating. My son and I stood on these stairs and thinking Jesus walked up these stairs. And, and think of all of the, the followers of Christ, all the believers who were on these stairs through the, through the millennia. And so you're standing on the stairs. Well, it is quite an ascent. I mean, there's levels of stairs going up to the temple. And so some people believe that literally they would, they would ascend a few stairs and they would stop and sing. And they would ascend a few more and they would stop and sing. I love that thought, don't you? Watch, please. You are literally singing your way into the presence of God. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name for the Lord is good. Look, please. If God really is good, we ought to give him praise and that shouldn't start at the church house. That should start at our house. So if you want to enjoy the journey with your family, lead them to worship. Dads, listen to me just a second. The greatest thing you ever do for your children is lead them to worship God. The greatest thing you ever teach your children is teach them to know and love God. It's very, very important. I didn't plan to say this, but the old Puritans actually taught fathers that it was their responsibility as the, as the priest of their home leading their family to the throne room. It was their responsibility on the Lord's Day after the preacher preached, after they went home to discuss with their children what God had taught them from the Word in the services that day. And I've thought to myself many times, I wonder how it would change the tone in our homes if we were having conversations around the dinner table about what God had spoken to us about from the Word of God. So there's a real application here to all of our lives, but look at the song of degrees. Would you like to go a little higher with your family? The Christian life is an ever-ascending life, right? Set your affection on things above. How many of you would like, let me ask before we read, how many of you would like to take your family to the next level? Would you raise your hand? All right, so let's go up a degree, shall we? Let's ascend a little bit. Look at Psalm 128, verse 1. Blessed. How many of you think that's a good first word? That's a great word. First word of the psalm is blessed which, for the record, literally means happy, joyful. That's the, the word that is utilized here. So you see the connection here in theme and even in tone to the previous psalm, and it is also a family psalm. Keep reading. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways, for thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be. Does that sound vaguely familiar to anyone? And it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel. I just, I just noticed this. Isn't it amazing? Every time you read Scripture, you see something for the first time. Everybody look at it. In verse 1, it's everyone. Aren't you glad God makes the blessing available to everyone? 
And then look at verse number five. It's for all the days of thy life. Oh, I love this. So everybody in this room can know God's blessing, if you will, and you can know it not for one season of your life. You can know it for all the days of your life. Problem is, everybody wants the product without the process. People want to be blessed. If I said, how many of you want the blessing? Uh, who's not going to raise their hand? If I said, how many of you want your children and grandchildren to be blessed? Oh, yes. How many of you want the church to be blessed? Oh, yes, preacher, we want that. Good. Are you willing to apply the principles so you can claim the promise? Because if we're not willing to obey, notice in verse number one, he begins with action. You've got to walk in his ways. Look, there's a path God lays out for us, and it's only as you take the steps of obedience to God that you can know the blessing of the Lord. Now, before I walk you through this psalm and give you these principles to write down, may I just say this? I really believe this. The God of the Bible is the God of blessing. Sin brings the curse. Jesus brings the blessing. When God created man in the garden, read Genesis again. When God created man in the garden, what's the first thing he did? He blessed him. You ever notice that? He didn't give him a job to do first. No, no, he blessed him. He blessed him, and then he said, be fruitful and multiply. Do you understand that every good thing in life grows and flows out of the blessing of God? He's the blesser. It all comes from him. When Jesus came, when Jesus came and began to preach, his most famous sermon, we stood on that mount, that mount of Beatitudes just a few weeks ago, and I just imagined what it would have been like to have been there that day and hear Jesus open his mouth and say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. You want to know the title of Jesus' first sermon? It was the blessing sermon. He brought them first to the blessing. Interesting footnote to that. The last time the disciples saw Jesus, he was ascending from a different mount, a mount outside of Jerusalem. He's ascending back to the Father, and his hands are raised like the high priest's hands would have been raised. And do you remember what Luke said he was doing as he went up? He was blessing them. Isn't that fascinating? He came speaking the blessing. He came giving the blessing. I, look, I'm on good Bible ground here. God desires to bless his people. The question is not, can God bless? The question is, and this is probably not good English, but forgive me, are you blessable? Are you in the place of blessing? I don't know about you. For me, I've found God blessing is not hard. He's, he's the God who just overflows with blessing. The hard thing is getting in a place where I can receive his blessing, enjoy his blessing, and allow the blessing to be real in my own life. So what does that look like? I want to give you five words to write down that will help you to remember the great truth of this psalm and they summarize the principles that are found here. It's not an equation, not a formula, but these are principles that must be followed if you would know the blessing. Number one, I want you to write down the word fear. <laughs> That's an odd first word when you're talking about blessing. Or is it? If I say to you, is fear a good thing or a bad thing, most all of us are going to say, oh, it's bad. It's really bad. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to be afraid, and, and there's so many frightful things in this world. And, and we love to quote, uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. And that's exactly right. But notice how the psalm begins. Blessed, happy, joyful is everyone that what? 
Hmm, now we got a dilemma. So are we supposed to fear or not fear? The answer is yes. Please don't miss this because the, the direction of the fear, the, the object of the fear is very important. Everybody look at the verse. It's not just blessed is everyone that fears. It's blessed is everyone that feareth what? The Lord. Watch, please. This is the only healthy fear. It is the fear of the Lord. And here's what I've discovered. When you fear God, you don't fear everything else. When you fear God, you don't fear everybody else. See, the greater fear drives out the lesser fears. Would you like to know how to, how to gain victory over a certain passion or desire in your life? Find a greater passion. Would you like to know how to get victory over a certain fear? There are probably people sitting right here who've dealt with tremendous fear, paralyzing fear. There's all kinds of phobias and fears, and they're genuine, and they're real, and, and people deal with them. We all have our certain fears. I'm going to tell you the way to conquer any fear. You fear God, and when God is in his rightful place, he puts everything else in its rightful place. See, when God gets big, everything gets small. <laughs> when God is great, and he is great, but when God is great in our thinking, you understand greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So it begins with the fear of God. Isn't that what Proverbs said? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Look, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the blessing. And he repeats it. Look down at verse number 4. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord. There's an attitude and an action here. The attitude means that we're in awe of who God is. God is mighty. God is great. We're in awe of him. That's the fear of God. The action is what grows out of the attitude, because I fear him, I'm going to follow him. Look at verse number one. When you fear the Lord, you walk in his way. So because God is God and because God's on the throne, then I'm going to let God give the direction, and I'm just going to do whatever he tells me to do. This is the life of faith and obedience that are always wedded together. Remember the old chorus we sang as kids, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You want to be happy? You want the blessing? Then we must go back simply to the fear of God. Romans 1 says one of the things that is missing in an apostate age, we're seeing it right now, is there is no fear of God before their eyes. I'm going to tell you something worse than that. You say, worse than that? Mm-hmm. When God's people stop fearing him. See, I could stand up here and preach against all the sinners out there, and everybody in here would say, amen, preacher, give it to them. And he can preach in all the wicked worldly sins that we're not doing. And we say, that's right, plow deep on that. I mean, this world needs that. And then, then we're all reminded that we're living fretful and worried and, and in unbelief and trying to figure it out and fix it on our own when we ought to be fearing God. And suddenly this principle gets deeply personal to us. So if you want the blessing, you must begin by fearing the Lord. Give you a little, little devotional thought here before I give you the second one. G. Campbell Morgan, years ago, I love Campbell Morgan to read after him. G. Campbell Morgan said that the fear of God and the love of God are flip sides of the same coin, that they are closely akin to one another. 
Now, we imagine fear and love are not the same thing. Perfect love cast out fear. That's exactly right. But look, please, the love of God cast out the fear of everything else. You've got to differentiate between the, the right kind of fear and the wrong kind, the right kind of love and the wrong kind. And here's what Campbell Morgan said. He said the fear of God and the love of God are both connected. They're, they're interwoven to one another because both of them have to do with our attitude towards God. They're both heart words. He gave a wonderful illustration. Now, most of you are just getting to know my wife, but Tammy is not the outspoken one in our family. That might shock you, but she, she's not the loud one of the family. I'm the loud mouth of the family. She's quiet and meek and, and has just a, a, such a pleasant personality and that kind of thing. If you ask me today, are you afraid of your wife? This one has potential, but I'm going to leave it alone, all right? Are you afraid of your wife? I would say no. I mean, she's never chased me through the house with a baseball bat. Not yet, at least. Uh, I, I've never been awake in the middle of the night with her standing over me with a knife. That's never happened. Praise God. Thank you, sweetie. I really appreciate it. No, I'm not afraid of her in that way. But may I tell you, after 25 years of marriage, that there is a fear in my relationship with her. And it is, it's, a, it's a big one. There is a certain fear in my love relationship. Do you know what it is? I'm afraid that there could come a time in our married life where she would be ashamed she married me. I really mean that. I'm afraid that I could do something, say something, and she would be just utterly ashamed to call me her husband. Do you know what that is? Watch, please. That is not the fear that she would hurt me. It is rather the fear that I would hurt her. The fear of love is not the fear that God's going to get you. See, that's the way people talk about the fear of God, like God's just waiting, just stomp you like a bug. Friend, if he's going to do that, he'd done it a long time ago. The mercy of the Lord endures forever. Look, I, I'm not afraid God's just going to squash me. That's, that's not the fear of God. The fear of God is this. I am so taken with the fact that God loved me, gave his son for me, has given me every joy and every blessing that, that I am afraid that I could do something that would hurt and grieve the heart of the God who loves me that much. And I'm going to tell you something. When you get that attitude in your heart and home, the blessing starts coming. So the first principle is fear. The second one I want you to write down is the word father. And I would say to you, this is one of the missing ingredients in many homes today. You have two extremes, really. You have, on one hand, men who are in the home, but they're not what they ought to be. They're present, but not present. Uh, they're bullies. And may I say to you, a bully is not a good representation of the heavenly father. On the other hand, you've got fathers who are completely absent, absentee husbands and absentee fathers. They're just not even there. Uh, they've deserted entirely or they have totally neglected their responsibility. But could I just point out the most obvious thing about the psalm? Who is he writing to? Now, this doesn't mean that the, that the ladies and children don't have application here because they certainly do. But please notice the, the whole tone is, verse number 3, thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine. Verse 4, thus shall the man be blessed. That doesn't mean the blessing is just for men. It means this, that the blessing of God is supposed to start at the top and then run down to everybody else. Might I say this to you, gentlemen? that it shouldn't be your wife's responsibility to be the spiritual lead in the home. God gave you that responsibility. Sometimes a, a lady will have to be father and mother. 
There are many reasons for that. Sometimes the death of daddy. Sometimes the desertion of daddy. There are many reasons. And by the way, some of the finest Christian homes I know are led by godly women. Isn't that interesting? And so I'm saying that because I'm certain, I have no idea who's even in the room today, but I'm certain there probably are ladies here that think my husband is not leading in that way. My, my husband is not even present to do this. Does that mean we can't have the blessing? No, no, look, please. The principle is that it starts with whoever is responsible and accountable to God for the leadership of that home. Whoever that is needs to make sure they are right with God because the blessing begins there. And every good thing God wants to teach to the children and extend to the next generation, somebody has to set in motion. It's my conviction that one of the principles here that is sorely neglected is that God begins with headship. It begins with leadership. It begins in the father. It continues to the mother and it extends to the children. This is God's divine ideal. And what we need are some homes that say, look, we're not perfect. But by the grace of God, we're all going to find our place and we're all going to do our part. Your pastor has not said this to me about this church. I'm going to assume it's not true. But many of the churches I'm in, there is a real dearth of male leadership, both in the church and in the home. And I would argue the reason there's a lack of male leadership in churches is because there is a lack of male leadership at home. When you don't lead for the Lord at home, you won't lead for the Lord at church. Not effectively. So if homes and church families are going to be strong and go forward and know everything God has for them, then gentlemen, by the grace of Almighty God, we must say, I want to be the Lord's representative in my home and I want to fulfill the responsibility he has given to me. I'm speaking personally here. I'm very grateful to God that my dad did that. I am the beneficiary of that. I will forever be grateful for my father. He's been a faithful man all these years. Not perfect, but a faithful man. He's taught me what a Christian man looks like. How he treats a woman. How he leads a family. How he pays his bills. How he gives to help others. And I want to say to you, I want my son to see that in me. Let's let all the men in this room today say, by the grace of God, whether you had it or not, you will begin it right where you are because you want those you influence to know God's blessing on their lives as well. So number one, you have fear. Number two, you have father. Number three, you have fruitfulness. I love this. In fact, the whole psalm is really just about fruitfulness. <laughs> you look at verse number three. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine. Thy children like olive plants. Did you know those are the two best fruits in that ancient culture? The fruit of the vine and the olive plant. Now, they were essentials to their civilization, and I might say they were the most expensive. They cost something. If you're going to know God's divine fruitfulness, you've got to have it God's way, and only the Lord can give it. See, you can't produce fruit. The fruit is what God produces, and we just get to bear it, but you've got to get it in line with the Lord so there's nothing between you and God so the Lord can give the fruit he wants to give. What is the fruitfulness? Well, let me show you several. First of all, notice there's fruitfulness in your work. Look at verse number 2. He says you'll eat the labor of your hands. I love this thought. We still work. There's still... Labor doesn't mean you become lazy and sit back and coast to heaven and let God do everything. God's not going to do what he told you to do. We were talking about this yesterday, but one of the things really missing in our world today is a work ethic. May I speak to all the young people just a second? 
get out of bed, get a job, and learn to labor. Now, that's deep theology, isn't it? But I'm going to tell you something. We're, we're living in a generation, a nation, where people just want to be cared for, and they expect somebody else to do the work, and they get the blessing and the benefit of that. God connects fruitfulness to your work. My grandpa Paul, he was a preacher, and died when he was 57. But my grandfather on my mother's side, we were talking about him yesterday, my grandpa Martin is the one that really influenced me. He lived uh, late in his 80s. He died on his way to his garden with his tomato steaks in his hand. He was a worker. He was an old World War II vet, a Navy man, worked on ships. He was at Pearl Harbor after the attack, helped with all the cleanup. And, uh, man, I wish I could go back, sit under that old cherry tree and ask him more questions. You know, I just, just should have asked more questions. He wasn't a big talker, but, man, he was a big worker. He'd work us under the table. I remember thousands and thousands of bales of hay every summer being thrown, and he was right in the middle of all of it. He's the one who taught me to drive a tractor. He taught me a lot of things. He was a coal miner. I was telling the preacher and his wife yesterday, a piece of coal fell one day, chopped half of his ear off in a coal mine. He picked it up, crawled out, drove himself to the hospital, handed his earlobe to a nurse and said, sew that back on. And they did. And they didn't clean it out good. They sewed a little grayish green line of coal dust into his earlobe. It was there to the day he died. And when I was a boy, I thought that was a badge of honor. I wanted one of those marks. I thought, that's a man right there, you know. He was a worker. Now, I'm going to tell you what we need. We need a revival of work today. That's what we need. People that actually understand that God will give the fruitfulness, but you've got to till the ground. You've got to plant the seed. You've got to weed the garden. You've got to work the soil. Look, don't expect all of God's blessing if you're not willing to do what God gave you to do. And then look at it again. Not only is there fruitfulness on your work, there's a fruitfulness with your wife. Your wife should be as a fruitful vine. Certainly, this is explicitly a reference to children, but may I just give a little word here because... Some of our precious friends are people who could not have children. We have people in our family who could not have children. And I fear sometimes when people come to passages like this, they say, well, that's not for me. No, no, my friend, it's all for you. I was reading one day and Spurgeon said something that so affected me. I wrote it down. Here's what he said. I love this. He said, good wives are also fruitful in kindness, thrift, helpfulness, and affection. If they bear no children, they are by no means barren. If they yield us the wine of consolation and the clusters of comfort. I like that. This juncture, our youngest is getting ready to leave home. May I say to you, I think I am starting to understand more and more the fruitfulness of my wife in my life than I have in 25 years of married life. And we've had a great time at every season. But the fruit in our home is not just Morgan, Lauren, and Grant. The fruit in our home is that God has given us each other to encourage in the Lord to make this journey together. And there is a joy in that. Don't miss the fruitfulness God has given you and your spouse. I was thinking while I was getting ready this morning about something you said yesterday. just stuck in my mind. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meditate on it, chew on it, study on it. I think you're exactly right. He made the comment yesterday that God gives us our spouse to help us with our own sanctification. 
I can't get away from that statement. That's so true. Everything God does is for our sanctification. May I tell you, I'm a long ways from being the Christian I ought to be, and my wife is a much better Christian than I am, but I know that I am a better Christian because of the things God has used her to demonstrate and teach to me. Fruitfulness. And then notice the progression. In verse 2, it's the fruitfulness of your work. In the first part of verse 3, it's the fruitfulness of your wife. And the last part of verse number 3, it is the fruitfulness of your children. Oh, I love this. God begins to mature and grow your kids. And all you parents know what I'm talking about here. There is no greater joy than to hear that our children walk in truth. What fruitfulness to see them following Jesus. By the way, maybe your kids are not right now, and you say, well, I'm not enjoying that fruitfulness. Listen to me with your heart. You keep praying, and you keep interceding because if they're breathing and they're alive, God is not finished with them. You may have raised them, and they may be grown, but the Heavenly Father is not done working on them. Trust God for the fruitfulness. And so we see this fruitfulness that God brings. Could I just give you one, one little interesting thought about the olive tree? Everybody look at that verse. He said, your wife is like a fruitful vine. The vine in Scripture is always synonymous with joy. So there's supposed to be joy in your marriage, joy in your relationship. But when he comes to the children, he does not equate them to the vine. Look at it. He equates them to a certain kind of plant. What is that plant? Would you write this down somewhere, maybe in the margin of your Bible? The olive plant is actually the plant that takes the longest to mature. <laughs> in fact, we were just in the Garden of Gethsemane looking at those olive trees. And I'm looking at trees that are 1,000 years old, 1,500 years old, thinking about trees that Jesus would have prayed under 2,000 years old. And you look at them and you think, this is where they are at this point. But look, the olive tree takes a long time to mature. Would you parents and grandparents take heart with me for just a moment, have faith in God in this, that God is still growing and maturing. God is still pruning the olive plant. He has not given up on them. Don't you give up on them. So we have fear, we have father, we have fruitfulness, number four. We have fellowship. And I love this. Look at the end of verse number three. Don't miss this. He said, they'll be like olive plants round about thy what? Now, he said, your wife is connected to the house, but the children are connected to the table. May I make just a very practical application here? I think one of the things that's missing in Christian homes today is the table. Many years ago, Christian families had meals together. My soul, you didn't even have to be a Christian family. Families just had meals together. You know what I've learned about mealtime? People talk at meals. They just open up. They start talking. At least if you leave your cell phone in the other room, they do. I go out to restaurants and I see whole families sitting around the table and all of them have their device in their hand. They're not talking to each other. And I think, put the phone down. Talk to the human being in front of you. You're going to miss them someday. Did you ever notice how many things Jesus taught his disciples around the table? It's always connected to fellowship. One of the ordinances is the Lord's what? The Lord's table, the Lord's supper. Why? Because there's a picture here of fellowship and of communion. I'm convinced that one of the things that is missing in our homes are these quiet times where we turn the media off, that's right, turn the television off, turn the noise off, and simply fellowship with one another. And I think one of the grand opportunities for that is around your table. I can prove it to you. Deuteronomy 6, you're to talk of the things of the Lord with your children, 
When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, and it says this phrase, when you sit in your house. <laughs> you know, part of the problem, we don't sit in our houses anymore. We're never there. I mean, honestly, people say supper time, back in, the, back in the day, supper time meant everybody comes to the table. Now, it means one of two things. Either run to the car, we're driving through fast food, or it means everybody come to the kitchen and get your food and then scatter to di different rooms so you can watch whatever you were watching on your device a moment ago. Somebody said, you're meddling now, preacher. Well, I'm leaving in just a few moments, so forgive me, would you please? And I'm saying to you, have a meal together. Have a conversation. It'll be awkward at first. It'll be awkward because we don't do it enough. But after a little while, you start having conversations, you'll be amazed what comes out. You'll be amazed what opens up. I was reading recently, the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse said this, that children who share family meals three or more times a week, just three or more times a week, are less likely to be overweight, more likely to eat healthy food, perform better academically, are less likely to engage in risky behaviors and have better relationships with their parents. <laughs> Those aren't church people. That's secularists saying, you know, one thing that might help your family is if you had a meal together. May I suggest to you, God had that notion long before man ever discovered it. So sit down and fellowship. One recent poll found that 62% of parents with children under 18 wish they had family dinners much more often or somewhat more often. New York University said in the past 20 years that the frequency of family dinners has declined 33%. Can I tell you, all these principles are connected. Look, please, do you want to know why children don't have any time with daddy? Because sometimes daddy never sits down. And I'm speaking as dad, so let me pick on dads for a minute. When we do sit down, we're so everlasting tired, we want that box in the living room to do all of our thinking for us, and we're present, but we're not present. We're not really engaged. It is time for families to get back to the right kind of fellowship in their homes. There's not some magic potion to this. People are waiting for a lightning bolt to strike the house, and suddenly, boom, they become the Christian family they're supposed to be. Friend, that's never going to happen. You're going to have to work at it. And you're going to have to apply the principles. And then let me give you one more. I love this. Look at, how, look at how the psalm ends. You've got fear and father and fruitfulness and fellowship and praise God. You have favor. It ends with the favor of the Lord. Oh, the blessing of the Lord. It maketh rich and he addeth no sorrow with it. There is, there is no blessing like God's favor. Look at verse 5. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion. And thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children and peace upon Israel. How many of you would like to live in verse 5 and 6? Would you raise your hand? Then you've got to first live in verses 1 through 4. You can't skip them. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. He's a God of divine order. This is a, a progressive revelation. God says, I will give you my favor. I will give you what you cannot buy. I will give you what the world doesn't sell at Walmart. I will give you what the New York Times best-selling author cannot explain to you. I will give you the favor of my presence. There is no substitute for it, and there is no shortcut to it. We need the favor of God. Somebody say, well, can you explain that to me? No, I can't. Mm -mm. Can't describe it, can't put it into words. All I know is this. When families get real and get right and say, we're going to stop living just 
to survive another week and pay the bills and just get by. We're going to seek God's way in our home. You will find the favor of God finds you. And in my mind, I'm standing on the side of my grandpa's pond, that catfish pond there in the hills. As a boy, tossing rocks out into the middle of the pond and watching the ripple effect. Trying to count how many ripples, how many ripples would it produce until it finally hit the bank and hit the shore and stopped? Could I show you the ripple effect that happens? Because please don't miss this. It's not just about your family. See, you, you think it's just about your family, but it's not. You understand your family is connected to lots of other families and, and to a neighborhood and all the friends you have and to this church and to what God is doing in the world. Would you look at the progression of this psalm? Notice, please. You've got father in verse number 1 and 2. Then you've got mother in verse 3. Then you've got children in verse 3 and 4. Watch it now. In verse 5, you've got a city, that's Jerusalem. And then you've got the nation in verse 6, that's Israel. And I would argue it doesn't stop in that verse. It actually is continued to us, which means, watch this please, what God set in motion in a husband and wife and their children has now touched the entire world. We are here thousands of years later benefiting from the blessing that the psalmist had come to enjoy himself. I said to the couples this weekend, have you ever prayed God would make your family a worldwide blessing? Have you ever imagined God could touch the whole world from right here? I'm not talking about you going around the world. Have you ever imagined that God, like, like, like the domino effect, could set something in motion in your marriage and with your children and in your family and in the influence of this church full of strong families that literally could make a difference in the whole world? It's got to start somewhere. It must start with us. Would you do one thing before we close our Bibles? Would you take your pen? I want you to do something. In verse 1, I want you to circle the first word. What's the word, class? I didn't hear you. One more time. Tell the person next to you. What's the word? Tell them on the other side of you. What's the word? And what's the word? Look back at me. What's the word? Very good. I'm brainwashing you. That's what I'm doing. Come down to verse 4. Behold, that thus shall the man be, would you mark it? Hmm, second time. <clears throat> Blessed that feareth the Lord. Verse 5, the Lord shall. Three times. That's <laughs> just six verses long. That's a pretty short psalm. Three times. Almost like God is trying to tell us something. I don't know how it was at your house growing up. At our house, if my mama said it something one time, we were supposed to listen. All God's mothers say. Amen. If she said it two times, we were really supposed to listen. If she said it three times, it was too late to listen. How many of you live in the dream? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's not good. When God says something three times, it's not because he forgot he said it the first time. No, when God says something three times, it's because there's something there he doesn't want us to forget that he said. And the divine repetition is the divine emphasis. God wants you to know his blessing. But the only way you can know his blessing is to obey his principles. You can't have his blessing on your terms. If you have God's blessing, you have to have it his way. Thank you for listening. 
If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.